Welcome to the Emerging Revolutionary War podcast. Emerging Revolutionary War is a public history platform that explores all aspects of the Revolutionary War with up-and-coming historians and connects this history to the places where it actually occurred. We strive to make it fun and engaging for all audiences. We have a blog and website, emergingrevolutionarywar.org, where you can check out frequent blog posts and history articles by numerous historians. In addition to our blog, we are active on social media. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We host an annual symposium and annual Battlefield bus tours. We also have the Emerging Revolutionary War book series published by Savas Beatty Press. Right now, we have seven titles out with more on the way. These books offer a brief, readable, and illustrated narrative that includes self-guided tours of the battlefields of many of the major campaigns of the revolution from South Carolina to Massachusetts. Check them out wherever books are sold. We always offer speakers that can talk about a range of Revolutionary War topics, and our historians have been featured in places such as C-SPAN, American History TV, and Fox Nation documentaries. Make Emerging Revolutionary War your home for the 250th anniversary of America's independence. This show is filmed live every other week on our Facebook page, so if you would like to watch these live and have an opportunity to engage with us, check us out every other Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern on our Facebook page. Enjoy the podcast. All right. Good evening, everyone. This is Rob Orson with Emerging Revolutionary War. I'm happy to be back here for one of our Sunday night chats, our Rev War Revelries. Very excited to have uh, Dr. Brooke Barbier with us tonight. Um, as we're gearing up for Boston 250, the Boston Tea Party, a lot of conversations have been going on um, about what's happening in Boston, some of the major players in Boston before uh, the Revolutionary War movement kicks off in 1773. Um, Brooke has, is an excellent public historian. She's authored um, several books. One, Boston, the American Revolution, A Town Versus an Empire. And tonight, we're going to be talking about her latest book uh, on John Hancock. Highly recommend it. We'll put the link to this in our chat later on. Um, but she's also, as I said earlier before we went live here, she's living the dream. She's giving history tours that involve beer. And if anyone has been watching our Emerging Revolutionary War talks over the last four years, you know our group is very much into those two topics. And <laughs> very jealous, uh, Brooke, of, of, <laughs> of, of, of what you do. But, but, but thank you for joining us. And, um, and again, this book, is, this book is fantastic. And, and tonight we're going to talk a little bit about John Hancock, a little bit about some of your other research and just kind of Boston in general in 1773. Sounds great. Yeah. yeah. And because it's a Sunday night revelry, I encourage people to have a beer with them as yes. they're watching us <laughs> chat. And, I, and as our as our blog post states, we are recording this. So that's why I don't have a beer in my hand right now. But usually if it was Sunday night live, we would have a beer. Yes, but, exactly. uh, I didn't have to work today. Um, so jump this off a little bit uh i just want to kind of go back and and tell tell us what drew you to this story of john hancock like, why did you find this story something worthwhile researching as we all know writing books takes a lot of time a lot of effort what drew you to this particular person and his story thank you so much for having me by the way rob i'm so excited to get to talk with you um for the next bit here. So John Hancock struck me because he was so popular in Boston and Massachusetts 
but few people knew, few Americans today know him beyond his famous signature. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful that they know that he's the first and biggest signature on the Declaration of Independence. But as you mentioned, I own a tour company in Boston. And for the past 10 years giving tours, uh, people who joined us were very curious to learn more about John Hancock. They didn't necessarily know that he came from Boston. They didn't know that he was so wealthy. They didn't know his big oversized influence on many of the local politics related to the revolution. And I wanted to put that story front and center and put Hancock in the place where Americans knew him in the 18th century, which was they knew him as uh, King Hancock, which is the title of my book, right. and we can get into that. But he he was so popular that he developed this nickname of King Hancock. <laughs> and so you talk about him being coming from a wealthy background. Um, what was that back is about his background that set him up to be a to be successful and to be a leader? It takes a special kind of person to do some of the things that we're going to talk about tonight. But what what about his background set him up for success? I think the actual thing that set him up the success for the, the most was really a tragedy. And it was that his dad died when he was seven years old. And John went to live with his wealthy paternal uncle named Thomas. Thomas had amassed the largest fortune in Boston in his single lifetime. And he did not have children. So he adopted John when he was when John was just seven years old. And imagine that, that you lose a parent and then you move away from your surviving parent and you go to live in the third largest town in colonial America with this very wealthy and shrewd businessman. And it's, I argue and believe that it's at that time that you start to see Hancock, you as the, the reader of the book or as the historian start to see him wanting to fit in. He wants to connect with people. He wants to be seen. And this grows to be that he wants attention. And that desire to be visible and on stage and connect with people is what makes him the leader that he is. People identify with him as he gets older and enters public life. People like him. They identify with him. Account after account says that he's cheerful with people or that one person said he spoke to every person like, quote, a brother or relative. He so those people skills he hones through his life. And I really think it's owing back to a, a childhood tragedy when he lost the family that he knew very quickly and had to find footing in a new town with new guardians. Right. Huh. What's his uh, education like? He goes once he it moves to Boston. He goes to Boston Latin School, which is where Samuel Adams went to school, for example, and Benjamin Franklin. So it's a preeminent school in Boston. And then he graduates from there and goes on to Harvard and graduates from Harvard. And then what's interesting about John Hancock, or one of the many interesting things, is that he's the third John Hancock in a line of John Hancocks. And his father and grandfather before him were ministers. And typically, we don't associate this necessarily with Harvard today, but in the 18th century, Harvard was often training you to be a minister. Right. Not always, of course, but but sometimes to be a minister. And so to have his dad and granddad as ministers meant that John Hancock was most likely going to be a minister. But because his life changed when his dad died, after he graduates Harvard, he goes on to apprentice with his uncle, 
do in the in the uncle's merchant business, which was called the House of Hancock. So they imported and exported goods from New England. They had a, a pretty deserve, diverse offering by the time that Hancock comes along. And so Hancock's education continues when he gets introduced to the local players in and around Boston. But his uncle also says, go to London. You need to meet some of the people there. You need to be helpful to us there. So he goes to London for the only time in his life in 1760. He's 23 years old. And so I also consider that him continuing his education. He learned a lot beyond just about the ins and outs of his uncle's merchant business. That's for sure while being in London. Yeah, he's young. Um, you know, we'll we'll dive more into his role, obviously, as revolution begins. But he's he's a pretty young individual as this movement takes off. And um, I think, you know, I've read about his dad passing away, but you really put a, a good, you know, good lens on that about how that had an impact on him. And only going to, you know, England once is, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these more, uh, these richer people tend to travel a lot more than that. He's, he tends to, to stay back in Boston. Um, and Rob, actually, if I can just pick up on one of the threads, because we yeah. might get to it, but this is a good time to mention it, is that he had only gone to London once. But there were others in Boston who become fervent radicals who'd never been to London or England or outside even of their home colony. And so while we see Hancock's influence as a leader be of a more moderate nature, this is one of the reasons why he had um, years of experience and his uncle had decades of experience with the British Empire, showing that you could be prosperous under the British Empire. And then there are others who didn't have such strong connections, who didn't have as much at stake financially or relationally, you know, with people across the across the Atlantic. And so that that influences him too. just that he has this connection with London Um not only having been there, and he's there during a formative time, he's there when King George II dies and King George III takes over the crown. Wow. Um, so it's it's not just that he's there at a really interesting time for the empire, but it's that he has connections there that other radicals don't. And we see Hancock diverge from other Boston radicals precisely for this reason. That's that's a great point. Um, and, and you talk about uh, radicals, and I want to dive into this now. I know it's a big topic, and it, we discussed it with Dr. Karp and, and some others, uh, oh, yeah, Christian and others. How does John Hancock, one of the wealthiest men in the colony, or in all the colonies, how does he become a revolutionary? Like, it's so much to lose, right? I get this question a lot talking um, about this history of the people like well why would someone who has everything to lose join people like Sam Adams and mm -hmm. and, and and you know and Joseph Warren like what what makes him and I know we can say he just chose the right side but what what is his interest in this that that makes him go with the revolutionaries as you know the sons of liberty take off and all these events are happening your question was, how does he become a revolutionary? And I would answer reluctantly. Um, mm -hmm. He he is in on revolution and then he's out. And this is infuriating to Samuel Adams and John Adams, for example, his fellow Massachusetts partisans, because 
we see John Hancock, for example, play be be a part, be at the center, really, of one of the most memorable mobs in the American Revolution. And that's the Liberty Riot of 1768. When your listeners might know about this riot, but just briefly, customs commissioners seized one of Hancock's ships called Liberty, ironically, believing him to have been smuggling in Madeira, a wine that Hancock enjoyed. And when they seize his ship, the townspeople in Boston erupt and they assault the customs officials. They drag one of the customs officials' boats out of Boston Harbor, haul it through the streets of Boston, up to Boston Common, Boston's public park, where they set the boat on fire. It is a stunning display to defend Hancock's right to smuggle wine. And Hancock isn't as troubled by it. So <laughs> Hancock is annoyed that they seized his ship because he can't trade any longer. But he's less annoyed by these taxes because he can smuggle his way around it. And so we see him enter the limelight around this riot and the townspeople really rallying to defend him. But then he wants to cut a deal with the British and says, I will um, agree to stand trial for smuggling if you return my ship. And James Otis and Samuel Adams say, you can't make that deal. It's a bad deal. <laughs> and so then he backtracks and says, okay, I'm not going to cut a deal with them. And that's kind of how it goes for Hancock. You mentioned the 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party coming up. And Hancock was more involved um, and more, more activated politically in 1773 than he had been since 1769. I mean, he really, he, he's pretty quiet for a few years. He's busy in other affairs, but just not, not politics. And with the Boston Tea Party, he gives a speech right before everyone went down to the harbor to dump the tea overboard. And he's, he's really, really activated. And a few months after the Boston Tea Party, he leads the famous Boston Massacre annual oration in 1774. And everyone thought that he did such a great job then. But just a few weeks later, he pulls back entirely. And for example, Samuel Adams gets very annoyed with him because Hancock wants to go to the funeral of a royal official and uh, with, with Hancock's Corps of Cadets, Boston's militia group. And Samuel Adams is furious that Hancock would do that. And so even those, of, even his contemporaries couldn't necessarily figure out just when you thought he might be on your side because he supported the destruction of the tea and the Boston Massacre Oration, he pulls back and says, I'm going to honor this royal official. I'm honoring the the man, not necessarily the position. And um, and and that's annoying to them. And then it's really not until I think one of the things that really turns things for him is in 1774, his life is in danger. British troops have reoccupied Boston and they openly taunt him. They go to his mansion and are, you know, kind of vandalizing it, threatening him. And that really, um, you, you can see where Hancock starts to get more involved. He becomes president of the Provincial Congress in late 1774 after sitting out the Suffolk County meeting at that earlier, uh, just a couple of months earlier. But then once again, we get to 1776 and he's 
not all in on independence. John Adams wrote that Samuel Adams had become, quote, very bitter against Hancock because he wasn't supporting independence the way that they wanted him to. So you, you just see this push and pull. And Rob, ultimately, I attribute it to being him being a human. Of course, when we look back on it, we see we see the way everything worked out. But when you're in it, you mm -hmm. don't know that it's going to work out. And certainly in 1776, you don't know that that severing ties with the British Empire is going to benefit you financially, number one, or, or personally. And so Hancock fights his way reluctantly. That was a really long answer just to say that. Oh, it's great. He, he is he's in and then he's out. And and I I attribute that to him being a person finding their way, just like none of us know what will happen tomorrow. Right. You know, after the Boston massacre, he Boston things calm down in Boston and kind of seems like he thinks the trouble's over. The imperial crisis is over. And so it's only when we read history backwards that we can look at someone like Samuel Adams, this fervent radical, and say he knew it all along. But he didn't. You know, there were times when he was being um, he was agitating and other people just said it's not that big of a deal. And and until I read you know, your book, I didn't realize that I just assumed once the Tea Party, the Tea Crisis happens, he's all in. Yeah. all the way through right yeah. I, it made sense to me not knowing boston history like you do i just i knew he was involved i knew he was all in i knew about the oration and then you know you brought in your book you bring about how he's reluctant and he kind of pulls back a little bit and i think the public notion that the more generally wide accepted notion is he's all in as a you know a sign of liberty from that point onward and um you know, it's 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 one of those little nuances that you know history seems to skip over sometimes, but it's very interesting because it does give you an insight into the person, right? Like you said, we're human beings. He was human. He's just like us in many respects, and uh, I think your answer is perfect. He was a human being, and it just took him a while to get to where he was going on on that journey. And um, and 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 you mentioned uh, his relationship with Adams. That was my next question. What is his relationship? with Warren, with John and Sam Adams and the Sons of Liberty? What's his involvement in, in the revolutionary underground movement there in Boston? You kind of touched on it a little bit, but what's their relationships like? Hancock is a contemporary of theirs. He's at many of the same events um, as Warren Adams, even Paul Revere. Mm -hmm. He uh, was a Mason in the same Masonic lodge that Joseph Warren and Paul Revere were part of. They met at the Green Dragon Tavern in Boston, in addition to many other members. He was at the Sons of Liberty dinner in 1769. That happened in Dorchester, Massachusetts. There were 350 men there. And Hancock was one of them, as was John Adams. So many big names. Most of the names we've already we've mentioned mm -hmm. already. Uh, but just to you know put, put it in perspective, of these 350 people, John Hancock, when they when they went to head from Dorchester back over to Boston, his carriage was first in the procession. And so he his wealth gives him a gravitas that um, that others just simply didn't have. And it seems like 
Samuel Adams sometimes just let Hancock be Hancock and say, he's good with the people like him, he's generous, he's congenial, and so just give him some of these honors. So he would be at many of these same events as these other Sons of Liberty. But for example, in 1772, when Samuel Adams and others like Hancock um, joined the Committee of Correspondence, Hancock declines. So most men that were like Hancock, wealthy, Harvard-educated Masons, joined the Committee of Correspondence, and Hancock did not, was not interested. And so, again, this is an example of where you would you would think that they're in the same circles at all times, but but they're not. And I I think that Hancock respects Samuel Adams a lot. He pays for the. The one portrait we have of him from this time period is by John Singleton Copley, and Hancock pays for that portrait. You can tell that he felt some, um, some, if not affection, but some, you know, um, connection to Samuel Adams. But then at other times, Adams is simply too much. So um, I, it, Joseph Warren was the one who made the connection between the British and Hancock after Liberty was seized and Hancock wanted to cut a deal with the British. It was Joseph Warren who acted as the go-between. Wow. And there's a reason for that because Joseph Warren is well-respected by both Crown officials and Sons of Liberty. And someone like Samuel Adams was later saying, you can't even cut this deal, this is a terrible deal. But Joseph Warren was more moderate at that time. So you see Hancock in these same circles with them, and um, and sometimes going along with their resistance and other times not. That's yeah, the, the warm part is, is fascinating, too. And <laughs> I mean, we all always assume they're all in on revolution. But, you know, it takes a lot of these people are moderates. Like you said, you know, he's a he's a radical influence of a moderate founding father. You know, he's, you know, there, these, there are some moderates here uh, that are involved that do eventually become revolutionaries. But all the background of, of Hancock's life, um, none of it has anything to do with a military background, but we always read about how he wanted to be yes. commander in chief of the military forces. You know, I, there's a great, there's a great uh, scene there in Lexington when, the fighting is taking place and he wants to rush to it. And Sam Adams like, nope, that's not where we're supposed to be. We're, we're over here. Uh, was one of my favorite kind of uh, moments there on April, April 19th, 75. What, where does that desire come from? Why, why does he think he needs, he deserves or wants to have that role in, in this movement, a, more of a military role, not a role of a, a government official or elected, elected leader. That's a really interesting question that I don't actually explore in the book. I just sort of tell you that he wants to be in the military, but I don't explore why he um, he's the he's elected the colonel of the Corps of Cadets, which I mentioned is Boston's militia group in the early 1770s. And he throws himself into this position. He starts using the term colonel. He's Colonel Hancock. He advertises for new musicians and he starts training them on the regular and they and other townspeople start to say, Hancock transformed you. You're a different group. I think for Hancock, it goes back to one of the things, at least, that that drives him to want to serve in the military 
is what we talked about earlier, is that it was a place where he could belong. Um, when militias had their training days in New England, they were off, the days often ended with food and drink and socialization, and sometimes other people coming by and you would show off, you know, your exercises. And that's very appealing to Hancock, to be at the center um, and the leader of a group of people that he can be generous with and that he can help lead. And I think that's that's one of the, the motivating factors for him. Your uh, story about April 19th also cracks me up when he's polishing his sword and says that he's ready <laughs> to take on the Redcoats. And of course, he's not going to be allowed to take on the Redcoats. There had been guards stationed around his house to, to make it difficult for Paul Revere to get inside, much right. less a Redcoat. Uh, but you see that he's wanting to participate. And I don't think that's bluster. I think some of it is a little bit of a little bit of posturing, but um, not all. And then he finally gets his chance to serve in the military and he's thrilled in Newport, Rhode Island. He comes back from the Continental right. Congress and he wants to spend time with his wife and son, but not he's not there more than a few weeks before he goes down to Newport for what they think will be the the battle of Newport and a hurricane blows through and he isn't able to, he sees no, no battle. Um, but he seems to really enjoy his time at camp in Newport. He writes back, he writes directly to George Washington offering updates on what's happening, which is not Hancock's place to, to <laughs> send updates to George Washington. Right. Um, but he's writing to his wife. He seems to to like the idea of being in camp. He likes that community that's there. He recognizes that he's in better conditions than the than the soldiers who are merely staying in tents without enough blankets as a hurricane rages. And he he rides through on his horse and checks on them. So I think those are the parts of the military. That experience of community and where he could be a leader is what really appealed to him. Battle strategy and tactics would certainly not be his strong suit. Right. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I, I forgot about the Rhode Island. I mean, that's that's a great point too. He actually did serve there for a brief moment, um, uh, and kind of going in more than the, the politics of Hancock. So yeah. we know everyone knows his autograph from well. Most people know his autograph from the Declaration of Independence and and all that, and we can talk about the the myth behind that later. But you know, Peyton Randolph is the president of that Second Continental Congress of Virginia. I am from Virginia, sorry, I had to put that in there. But uh, <laughs> but you know, when when Virginia starts to, uh, to discuss its own government, he leaves, and and Hancock is elected as a the Second Continental Congress president. So, what is what is the impression that others get throughout the colonies? Like why was Hancock chosen after Peyton Randolph left? I mean, we always know Hancock's very much involved in Massachusetts, but he obviously had to have been popular enough throughout all the colonies to get that position. So how do others see him across the different colonies and, and how did he become so popular and important enough to get that position once uh, Peyton Randolph had left? This is a great question. Peyton Randolph, when he leaves, there's not much in the historical record. It literally right. just says the journals of the Continental Congress say John Hancock unanimously selected president. So we don't get the insight into, you know, any voting or who may have nominated him. But it's clear that he satisfies two things. 
One, he's from the north. So Peyton Randolph from the south. Now you're looking to the northern colonies as sort of parody. But two, he has the revolutionary credentials. He's coming from Massachusetts. And I'll say more about that in a second to answer your question about how people know him. But he also assuages conservatives' concerns. He is a very wealthy man. And they know that. And they know that he's different than Samuel Adams or John Adams. Neither of them was selected president for a reason. So Hancock really threads this needle of being conservative enough and radical enough. And the, the question of do people know him? Certainly, yes. Once word breaks out about the battles of Lexington and Concord, as the delegates from Massachusetts and Connecticut are traveling down to Philadelphia, they are cheered consistently along the roads. Hancock loves that attention and admiration. He writes to his wife about it, but even if he didn't, you know that he would appreciate that's because he did like that. He liked being, being seen by people. And when he gets to New York City, Rob, the, the crowds want to unhook his carriage and offer to carry him into town. They didn't offer to do that for Thomas Cushing, Samuel Adams, <laughs> Silas Dean, John Adams, and Robert Treat Payne, none of these other delegates. It was for Hancock. So while we don't necessarily know how things spread, you know, how this name ID spread, we know that by May 1775, Hancock would arrive to colonies outside of Massachusetts and be cheered. And I can just, I'll briefly just mention that the title again is called King Hancock. And that, the first time we hear that nickname being used is in a derisive way by British officers. They have cornered this man in Boston in the summer of 1774 and demand to know who ordered the destruction of the tea, which was what the Boston Tea Party was called at the time. And the guy says, nobody. And they said, you're a damned liar. It was King Hancock and the damned Sons of Liberty. And that's the first time that we see it in use. And this nickname is clever because it captures Hancock's popularity. So his these are British officers saying this. So they knew that Hancock was one of the town leaders, if not the considered the town leader. But it also is a backhanded condemnation, you know, of the lack of aristocratic ruling class in the colonies to say the best you can do for King is this guy, John Hancock. But as you likely know, on the morning or by the afternoon on April 19th, 1775, as British troops were retreating out of Concord, British officers were being were so annoyed because they were being fired on from all around. And then they could hear colonists crying out, King Hancock forever. And so the colonists had appropriated this nickname and turned it into a rallying cry. Mm -hmm. And so that's his popularity even outside of the Massachusetts countryside. They knew his name, they knew this nickname, and they used it. So uh, Hancock was well known enough by the time he got to Philadelphia, by other delegates, and by Americans, that he was a good choice. And by the way, I'll mention, it is that choice. It is Peyton Randolph leaving and Hancock becoming president. It is that small moment that makes his name for history. Right. It's true. Um, and you kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but, you know, we 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 read about Hancock, uh, 
Tea Party, Revolutionary Movement, Declaration of Independence, the great debates. It's a great scene in the John Adams series where just the actor plays him is just kind of laid back, like, I'm so tired of this debate going on and on. It's a great, it's just a great scene there. Um, but then when the war happens, he kind of drops off the, you know, the narrative for most people. I'm not saying he doesn't, you, you talked about his act of service after the Continental Congress, but what is he doing in Massachusetts while the war is going on? We know the British leave Boston and then, you know, things in Boston are, are going along. But what is he involved in? What's his role? I, you know, I know a little bit about him saying helping set up the Massachusetts government, but most people, when they read American Revolutionary War history, they know about Hancock, but it almost always ends July 4th or July 3rd, 1776. Tell us a little bit. I know it's a big question here. So no, it's not, it's <laughs> tell great. us a little bit about what he's doing while the war is going on. Is he still involved in politics nationally and on the state level? Hancock, um, I totally agree with you. Most people, the narrative stops in 1776 right. because when he leaves the Second Continental Congress as president, he doesn't know it then, but that is the highest ranking political office he'll hold. And he goes back to Massachusetts. He, as, as I said, goes down to Newport to fight, but there's no battle that he participates in. And then what he does, so your question's important because um, I'll say, you know, I've been saying that he's a moderate, but then once he signs the Declaration of Independence, he goes all in on the Patriot cause. And you can't consider him lukewarm against this conflict with the British. But once the war is won, and we'll, we'll, we may get into this or not, but I certainly get into it in the book, is that he's he uses moderation again in the new state of Massachusetts. But to, to answer the question about what's going on in the war is he returns home from Newport in 1778, and he turns out to be far more helpful on the home front than the battlefront. As you know, the uh, France had decided to ally with the United States formally and start sending in not just supplies and money as they had been, but troops. And they send over um, naval ships to help. That was the whole point of the Battle of, uh, the idea behind the Battle of Newport was for the British Navy to engage with this new ally, the French Navy. But people in Boston and Massachusetts are very suspicious of the French for a couple of reasons. They're a Catholic, mostly a Catholic nation and Bostonians are suspicious of Catholics. And they also have been fighting against the French for decades alongside the British. And now here the roles are reversed. They're expecting to fight alongside the French against the British. Even Paul Revere was prejudiced against the French. He uses that word, prejudice. And he's half French. His dad was a French immigrant. <laughs> right. So this is um, a deep-rooted prejudice in Boston. And do you know what Hancock does? He entertains the French. He entertains them finally at his home, in taverns. He holds a ball. All of this helps to model for Bostonians how to treat the French. There was a conflict very early on. in When those French soldier sailors arrived to Boston. And one of the one of the French officers gets killed in this scuffle over bread. And even George Washington was very nervous that that death could end the alliance. And he says, we really must repair this relationship. And then this is where Hancock can step in and shine because we know that he's good with people. We know that he likes to entertain. And 
So he really is quite helpful in solidifying that French, that very early French alliance um, in Boston. And then in 1780, when Massachusetts finally ratifies their state constitution, he is the first governor of Massachusetts. So he serves until 1785. But so for three years during the war, he's serving as governor as well. And that's a great segue. Um, one of your chapters is titled Defending Massachusetts from the United States. Um, we always think of uh, the Southern colonies being more sovereign in their in their mindset. Talk a little bit about the title for that chapter and, and what you dive into in that particular chapter, because it's a lot about, you know, his experience leading Massachusetts. We take for granted so many things today as Americans that the number one, that the Constitution was the right government at the right time and that everyone was supportive of it. But it was not that popular even in Massachusetts when the new constitution was proposed because many feared an overreaching federal government or central government because prior to the proposal of the, the new federal government with the constitution, there was a very weak central government. And so someone like Hancock, a governor of a sovereign state, he was happy being the governor of a sovereign state. And he worried that this new constitution would take away many rights that he had as the governor of the state, but also that the state had. So he didn't want the, the new Congress to be able to tax Massachusetts before Massachusetts taxed themselves. Mm -hmm. There's there's little instances of this where he was very concerned. Um, he called Massachusetts a separate republic at at a certain time. So he really understood that each state was different from the others and was, was concerned about how they might all work together because they have different interests. He also even mentions the climate, that they, they have different climates and that is gonna make them have different interests. I will note, of course, that, that when he's talking about protecting the state, there isn't a federal government yet. So um, there, that's like the early days. And today, when we think states' rights, it's usually alluding to, to a much later period. But um, so Hancock was very protective of it, and almost to the point where he wasn't going to support ratifying the new constitution. And we can talk or not about, about his decision too, but um, but he was he was nervous enough that he was reluctant to 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 ratify. And I bet that's something most people don't know. Uh, we know about Patrick Henry here in Virginia, who was against it and a few others in the Anti-Federalists. But, you know, um, I bet most people don't know Hancock's stance during that whole debate. Uh, which is another reason to pick up your book, right? To read to read about these little nuances about uh, John Hancock that most people uh, didn't even didn't even realize were part of his life. Um, so, yeah. go ahead. I'll just say, like once again, it's sort of when you read history backwards, you you think that when you know what's going to happen, you think like, oh, of course that this all worked out the way it should. And I write in the book about a tendency that psychologists identify called hindsight bias, wherein people see past events as preordained or meant to be. And when you 
when you fall into hindsight bias, you fail to recognize other ways that a situation could have gone. It all seems to that, no, of course it was going to go this way. Right. And so that's what I try to pick apart throughout the book is just the idea to say this could have gone many different ways. And the people who are living in it didn't know what we know today. They were only living their life in that day, in that moment. And so exactly right that I, I think a lot of people don't know that there were prominent revolutionaries, including Samuel Adams also, who were opposed to the Constitution initially. Right. One of the things I mentioned to you before we went on, on live is one thing about your book, one of the many things I like about your book is how you kind of dive into some of the customs and norms of the time period. I, I just turned to page 134, talk about carriages. You mentioned carriages earlier. And you don't just say something about Hancock coming in a carriage. You actually dive into the, you know, the, the social norms of that time period, how it was to travel, you know, who traveled, how far people traveled. And um, obviously that, that reflects your public history side of trying to get people in, in, in a mindset to understand some of these individuals. Um, so you took a lot of care to do that throughout, throughout this book. I'm not sure if, if you realize that or not. Sometimes authors write these things and they just, they just do it not knowing it. But do you, in your personal writing, do you think why do you think that's important? I mean, I think I know why it's important to me because it helps people understand. But you definitely take an effort. It's a it's a biography of a man, but it's also a little bit of insight into the social customs and norms of that time period. Uh, if you can talk a little bit about why you, you 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 took some effort into doing that, which I think is fantastic. Thank you so much for saying all of that. Um, it's definitely intentional. And um, it, it comes from, as you said, my background as a public historian. While I'm trained as a scholar, I talk to people every day and I hear their questions and I hear what they're interested in about history. And I want to make that history as real for them as possible. And so your example of the carriage is one where we we sort of think, well, if you just think about riding in a carriage, you don't realize how uncomfortable it would be, how slow it would be. So I I try to put the reader in to, to make some of these things um, a little more three-dimensional. Right. When you picture the men in the wigs, what, what why were they wearing a wig? What was that like? Or what was the, the clothing like? And this all comes from me wanting people to to I really believe in experiential history and if you can't experience it by looking at a building um I want you to experience it by by being able to hopefully construct a world so so your you noticing it is and pointing it out is very kind of you and um I think I I hope that I do that for readers in places to give them a, a sense of of what life was like I, I think at this particular part you know, I I have notes all throughout this, uh, throughout your book, but like, I think travel, when, when I do tours to the public, and I think travel is one of those things, information, obviously, today is much different, but travel is so different, right? Like, we just get the car and go somewhere, and you kind of dive into, like, you know, how difficult it was to travel someplace, and not everybody could do what Hancock was doing, and this is the same passage you talk about him coming into New York City, and people rushing out to see him, which is, which is a great story too. But I think it's great um, that, that you took the time to do that. Cause I do think that that 
you know, enhances the story a lot more than just not going into that, right? It helps people understand what's happening um, and understand understand your character, uh, the person you're writing about much better as well. Thank you. That's um, really so, so nice of you to say, because I, I hoped to do it, but, um, you know, you never, you never know how, <laughs> if, know. if it'll connect. So, thank you. Um, not to keep you much longer here, but you should try to keep it around an hour. I can talk to you forever about John Hancock. I know there's yeah. lots of things we haven't covered yet. I apologize. But I do want to talk about uh, Hancock and memory. Your epilogue talks a little bit about Hancock and memory and and um, and how we see him today beyond the autograph, beyond the insurance company or a building in Boston. Uh, why do you, How do you think we remember him today? And why do you think he's important for us to keep in mind and keep and keep reading about and keep studying? I wanted to write that that final epilogue to note that his life, when it ends, a new sort of legend begins about mm -hmm. this man. And I think he's important to continue to study because Americans know his name. And he'd be Hancock would be very pleased to know that Americans know his <laughs> name for this bold, beautiful signature. But in that, that's sort of the irony of it. He had this bold signature, but he had politics that were much less bold. And there's that old legend myth about him signing so big so King George III could see it without his spectacles. Um, and that certainly didn't happen. But it's, I, I, it's worth exploring this man we know for this one thing to see what what's actually behind that signature what what were the many events that had to happen and and things in his life transpired to get him there and then once he's there like i said he 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 is fully with the patriot cause but then how does he use that moderation again in the in the new republic so, so oh, go ahead just that he was this popular man at, at the time. He was this larger than life figure at the time. And to, to put that back in in its rightful place for people, for Americans to know him today the way they did in the 18th century. So I have to be honest with you, I had my book sitting up on my desk, my 10 year old who just is studying history and not pushing it on him, but he's, he's enjoying okay. it. He saw it and he goes, Dad. That's the guy that wrote his name so big so the king could see it. Talk about this for a brief second, please. Because okay. <laughs> yes. it's like out there everywhere. That's the fact wild that my fifth you. grader yes. is taught that in school. I know. So that's, I'm glad you <laughs> shared that actually because I didn't know if they still were teaching that or where he might have picked that up. I don't know. But um, it's simply not true for one, let's just say one very practical reason. There is only one copy of the Declaration of Independence that was signed by everyone. Right. And that was never sent to the king. They had no intention of sending the engrossed copy with all 56 signatures to the king. When the king did receive what? a copy of the Declaration of Independence, he didn't even look at it. There, there wasn't necessarily even a thought that he would. So when he signed when hancock signed it in the moment there wasn't an expectation that it would be that 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 one document that everyone signed was going to the king that's by the way the document that's in the national archives in washington right. dc that you can visit today and it's beyond battered uh so that's the that's the really practical reason that we 
just know that's not just not true because the king was never intending to see it. Hancock also signed in the center and the biggest because he was president of the Second Continental Congress. <laughs> Only one name was needed to authorize the signature, and it and it was that. And then I'll just offer this that it's not until 40 years, 40 plus years after the declaration is signed that Americans see the deck, the engrossed copy that is at the National Archives today, see it for the first time. So everyone, <laughs> Americans knew that John Hancock signed the document or, or his name was tied to the declaration is more accurate because the typeset versions of the Declaration of Independence, which are still circulated in museums today, they say at the bottom, John Hancock, president, but it's typeset. And that's what Americans knew of the Declaration of Independence until they did that um, copy of the engrossed copy and started distributing it to Americans. But that didn't happen until the 19th century. And that's when this myth starts to build. <laughs> it's a great point. I mean, a great point about the 40 year difference there. And, and you're right. His name is big because he's president. He's the only one that needs to sign it. But, uh, yeah. you know, it's a great, uh, you know, these little myths are always, they're funny, they're interesting, but sometimes, you know, some of them get started and it's kind of interesting how they get perpetuated. I don't know if you learned that school or where you learned that. Didn't learn it from me, I promise, but. Uh. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's hard, I'm sure, to tell a 10-year-old, that's not true. What, that that very funny, interesting story you said is not true, but um, I always find reality, reality, the actual history to be more interesting than the myths. I exactly. understand why the myth came about but um but he he didn't he didn't say that it's i think it's more interesting to say he signed so big but up until a month earlier he was unsure about it how about right. that you know yeah. and let's have a discussion about how he gets to the point of signing it i was just happy he knew who he was so <laughs> I, I mean, honestly, me too me too i'm not mad at him <laughs> um it's all Patrick Henry, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson down here. So uh, really quick, as we wrap up here, uh, you know, I, I mentioned this to you before we went live. Uh, where are some places other than your book for our, our viewers? Where are some places you recommend in around Boston that interpret Hancock's life that you think are places that people really want to dive into John Hancock they should go see? Okay, so number one, if you can, join us on Yield Tavern Tours, our tour company, to see 10 historic sites on the Freedom Trail. We have beer at three historic taverns. and um, But let me give a couple of other things. If the tours uh, don't fit with your schedule, there's some really easy ways to connect with Hancock in Boston. You can go to the Granary Burying Ground, where he is physically buried. That's right downtown on the Freedom Trail. The location of his mansion, which was demolished, which I talk about in the epilogue, which was a, mm -hmm. a really pivotal moment, um, that there's a little plaque at the top of the right next to the state house on the state house gates. So you could go see the location, not the building doesn't stand anymore. The location of Boston Latin School, where he attended school, is also um, on the Freedom Trail. You can see right. Old South Meeting House on the Freedom Trail, where Hancock delivered that Boston Massacre oration. You can walk just a few more steps to the old state house. That is where he worked as a legislator and as governor. And they have a replica of one of Hancock's coats. It used to be the original. 
but they put that in storage and they made a replica and it's a velvet coat. I actually wore my velvet blazer today in honor nice. of, of Hancock's velvet <laughs> coat. His is a crimson, but um, so there's, there's so many places where you can go and, and literally walk. Well, Hancock probably didn't walk in the steps, but you could walk where he rode in his carriage through <laughs> colonial Boston and to his final resting place as well. And you, I was going to have you talk about your tour business. You kind of did a little bit. Yeah. Anywhere you want to expand on that? Because I think it's a great idea. What you're doing up there is is fantastic. Thanks. Yeah. we. I've been doing it for 10 years now. And um, we talk about the revolutionary and drunken history of Boston. So we talk about the role of alcohol um, with Bostonians during the American Revolution. So if you think about that, for example, that Liberty riot that I mentioned in 1768, that's all in defense of Hancock's right to smuggle wine. So we, we, we tell stories like that, but it's really grounded in history and while also being a lot of fun. And we'll, I'll put a link to uh, your book and a link to the Yale Tavern Tours website in the chat when we post this uh, podcast. Uh, last question, what's your next research project? What are you, what are you researching now? And what are you looking to to write about in the future? I am continuing my research on the American Revolution. My project is still so new that I'm not really talking too much about it. But um, listeners won't be surprised when it comes out because it um, it's a new way of looking at the American Revolution. Oh, great. Well, yeah, uh, widening the lens outside of Boston and Massachusetts. That's great. Well, Brooke, thank you for, for joining us. Thank you for taking time to talk about your book. Again, it's King Hancock. Like I said, we'll put a link to it. Sorry for the shiny page there, but <laughs> it's a it's a fantastic book. It's it's something when you pick it up, it's hard to put down. It's a great, uh, well-researched, well-footnoted, documented uh, biography of John Hancock. Like I said earlier, also kind of puts you in the, the social norms, customs of that time period too. It helps you understand these people better and, and the role they played. And, and obviously the role that Hancock played leading up to the Boston Tea Party, which you said the anniversary is coming up in just a few weeks. Hard to believe. Our Emerging Rev Work group will be up there in December. Uh, looking forward to that. Uh, there's going to be a great time up there. Hopefully a lot of people are coming. Hopefully yes. all the tours you have are sold out. <laughs> I'm hoping, you know, great business for everyone up there who's doing history. Um, but thank you again for joining us. And uh, thank you, everyone, for watching. And we'll watch you next time. Take care. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, everyone, for watching.